0: From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. Yet. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Salutations, my good people. Thank you for joining us for the last episode for season three. I usually take a hiatus during the summer because the sister needs time to rest, of course, but we'll be ready to kick off season four in September. So be sure to stay tuned for updates on our Facebook page, Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, the IG account Journeys B2B underscore podcast, and of course the website, my website, www.indialoricwilmot.com. So to commemorate June for being Caribbean Heritage Month, I am thrilled to have my guest, Desiree Gordon. Desiree is a healing artist and cultural strategist with a dedicated practice of curating, producing, and collaborating with peoples and communities to build pipelines to power, to nourish ecosystems of care, and design networks of sustainability. As a heart-centered leader, Desiree's work achieves impact with a skillful blend of creative vision, detailed analysis, and active compassion. She has successfully honed these skills at the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Brooklyn Museum, Caribbean Cultural Center African Diaspora Institute, among other institutions, and was recognized for this work with a Reimagining the Museum Fellowship by the Smithsonian Institute. Currently, she serves as the Director of Programs and Strategy at the Brooklyn Arts Council, where she has designed the organization's first social justice, social innovation investment strategy, established a hybrid digital wellness platform as a workforce development and social equity initiative, and initiated the Thrive Fellowship and Convening as the flagship program of the Brooklyn Innovation Institute. Additionally, after being a part of multiple performance collectives, including Matriarch and the all-women sound healing ensemble, SEYA, Desiree is currently producing two, not one, but two independent projects. The first, We Fly Home, a visual sound poem that narrates an immigrant journey from longing to self-ownership. And second... I Honor Myself, a four-song EP exploring many of the topics that have proven to be thematic in her life, values and work, including rebelling, healing, and loving. Welcome, Des. Thank
1: you so much. And thank you for having me. What a beautiful uh, introduction. And I'm so, so honored to be on this platform with you.
0: I love the multitude of ways you weave together creativity, music, song, and poetry with social justice, equity, empowerment, wellness, and of course, this reclamation of joy. So I can't wait for us to learn more about your journey, the inspiration, the beauty, the power, and the politics of being a Black Caribbean woman as you show up in the work. So are you ready? I'm ready. Here with you. All right, let's get into it.
1: Right about now,
0: Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. All right, Des. So, as a creative and a curator, a cultural strategist, and social justice practitioner, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. So, how did you become interested in doing this type of work?
1: One of my earliest memories is seeing my dad on the television, that he was a broadcaster, news anchor. So I always understood that it was natural to sort of be in the world, to be helping people understand what was happening in the world, and that I should do that too. Daddy took us to radio stations, and it was a natural connection to it. what I see and what I understand is something that I should be a part of sharing with others. I have an American Studies degree because... It was interdisciplinary. And frankly, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, wasn't quite ready to make a choice. But that sort of course of study was less about a canon and
0: more about a methodology. And what do you mean by methodology?
1: I understood that methodology to be how art and art institutions can be a barometer, an indicator, a catalyzer for what is going on in the world or what we want to see going on in the world.
0: I like that. So elaborate a little bit more for the audience. I guess what I'm setting up here
1: is this idea of utility. I kind of understood and gravitated towards things that set myself up, my voice up, and the thing that I love, this art space, for a certain sort of utilitarian sort of application in the world.
0: Okay, so give us some examples. Were there organizations or activities that you engaged in that really helped to solidify this utility and utilitarianism?
1: So shortly after college, I was very heavily involved in an organization called Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which comes out of the New African People's Association or or organization NAPL. One of the uh, main projects was something called Black August. So I'll back up and say that Malcolm X grassroots movement, the core tenet was this idea of self-determination for Black people as a human right, not over others, but like that each set of people should have a level of sovereignty, should be able to control the institutions in their community and as a means of self-determination, as a means of sort of progress. And then we did this project Black August. Black August is not our concept. We don't own it, but we had a concert every year that we used to raise funds to support political prisoners, one of whom was just released this week, Sundiata Akolai, and that is on the back end of almost 50 years in prison, on the back end of almost of work that's been going on for almost that long to get him out and others. Leonard Peltier is still inside. Mumia is still inside. Asada still can't come home. Nahanda died outside. You know, we can go on and on.
0: Okay. And so Black August was a concert series. Talib Kweli was there.
1: Most came. I feel one year we had Bahamadir, We had all these names. And I was really, really, deeply moved that, Here we had this sort of, we were organizing this cultural event that was raising funds to support legal services to support these political prisoners.
0: And back then, because this was almost 20 years ago, what did it confirm to you about the kind of work that you were inspired to do for the future?
1: It further solidified this idea of utility for the arts, which is a very original people's thing. We don't typically people around, indigenous people around who didn't just make art and put it somewhere and you just looked at it. It was used. When my first career opportunities, they were at cultural centers or at performing house places like 651 Mm -hmm. Arts, Brooklyn Museum, etc. And I just understood that I was to be used and whatever I was doing was to be of use.
0: Right. And then through these uses, that's how you start to integrate art as part of social justice.
1: Art against police brutality and art for housing and art for climate, you know, again, talk about climate change. So and sustainability. So I say all that to say that's how I come to this pathway that sort of positioned me consistently at the intersection of using art for community, using art for people, using art for
0: justice, using art for wellness. I like what you said around the arts and even these institutions that in many ways for you, they sort of represent being like a barometer of what's happening. And I think in many ways that, you know, life imitates art and art imitates life. So there's this interesting symbiosis that exists Mm -hmm. in terms of really speaking to the culture and the culture speaking back to us and being reflective. So I think that's an interesting arc in terms of how you see that as one type of platform or tool to kind of address some of these other social issues around equity. What is it about certain types of art that really speaks to you? Because you are also music and performance artists as well. So it's more than just, I look at different mediums of art, but you're also part of the production aspect. Why music? Why performance?
1: I went to a a dance class yesterday. I have danced. I have taken dance classes. I wouldn't call myself a dancer in the way that I call myself a singer. So just to be clear. uh, But so (laughs) the the young woman who was leading the class, she was a, a number of the people in the room were not necessarily dancers or naturally interested in dance. We were there for our friend. It was her birthday. And she said to make people comfortable, dance is about coming outside of yourself. And I immediately understood because for me, when I sing, when I'm in music, I can feel the purest element of myself stand up and sort of fly out and I kind of get to fly with it. And so for me, music has been a thing that lifts me up and allows me to fully feel myself. As a firstborn girl who's relatively soft-spoken and quiet and is, you know tries to do the right thing and behave, there are many ways in which sort of my default, at least in the past, uh, has been, you know, can, can be rigid. Song was a space of freedom and feeling myself in full-bodied, full-spirited. I always often say, I feel like those of us who are vocalists, we're the luckiest of the musicians because our instrument is inside us. Music gives me me.
0: As I mentioned in your bio, you are currently producing two independent projects, We Fly Home, as well as I Honor Myself. And so I I appreciate you talking about the ways in which music allows you to fly into and express a certain kind of freedom and a fluidity so that you can traverse these different spaces so that whether it's talking about issues related to love and family, community, or even something extreme such as police brutality or something along political lines. Mm-hmm. you had that creative license and fluidity to be able to traverse. You also talked about your dad, going with him to the different stations, the radio stations and so forth. I'm interested to know, what is it specifically about that childhood experience that motivated you to use music and arts also as an organizing platform, as opposed to journalism or something along those lines?
1: I don't think I really, and it seems silly, but I didn't I sort of understand journalism as a pathway. I didn't connect it as a pathway for myself immediately because I had a performance history, because I had been involved in a number of sort of performance ensembles. Moving into curatorial production roles was really natural. And I had, even in the, the ensembles and Projects that I had been a part of, I sort of naturally lean, inclined towards organizing it, being the business head, doing the networking, sort of the strategic piece and being a part of the, the performance, being a part of the talent, but also having a, a, a bird's eye view on how I wanted to connect So I think that organically planted and blooming in performance spaces and then other sort of gifts and inclinations I had to organize and lead and connect and they blossomed.
0: It's a journey, Mm -hmm. right? You might have a particular adventure because even in this this segment of the podcast, it's the call to adventure. But Mm -hmm. I also believe we as humans experience a multitude of adventures as part of our life's journey. But that's interesting for you, the experience of, you know, utilizing music and performance and how that came about for you organically still is another type of storytelling that also journalists engage in. Absolutely, It's just a different presentation of how the protagonist, the antagonist is being portrayed or described, what the context is, how you choose to share that. It's all about the lens and how wide angle or how myopic that lens is, translates in the work.
1: That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And even what you're doing, if I may, is so cool. I'm so inspired. And I know there's gonna gonna be elements of this, this, even this format that's gonna show up in my work.
0: What's that pivotal moment that really confirmed to you, this is your path? And in answering that question, I think it'd be helpful for the audience if you explained, what is a cultural strategist?
1: I spent a lot of time performing, then curating, producing at different sort of spaces. And after a while, I got bored of a lot of that. I got bored of just one organization's mission or one organization's vision, one organization's stakeholders. And I was, I had, again, there's that bird's eye view, that firstborn girl sort of thing. We're always looking around and seeing what needs to happen for everybody else, right? And I'm, I am comfortable and inspired by that bird's eye view place, the place of making the connection. Part of sort of shifting out of that in, in terms of my career was about wanting to have more of an impact on the landscape, on the field at large. And so philanthropy became a, a real interest, cultural philanthropy, because I think that philanthropy is a gateway to policy. How can I sort of enter philanthropy fund grant making space, even though I've been in the cultural space and so, a, an arts council felt like the right way to bridge those two worlds.
0: And so what does cultural philanthropy and grant making actually look like?
1: in order to make grants successfully in the space, you have to understand what cultural institutions need, the struggles and challenges of cultural institutions of various sizes. What does that mean? How do you advocate for sustainability in the space? What kinds of cross-sector partnerships, social innovation and social equity kind of thinking, strengthen the sector? How How can we speak to and amplify the generative impact of artists and art? How can we think about how art assets can be investments for education? How can an art asset help help strengthen the public healthcare sector in a for, a for a community? Making those kinds of connections are, to me, how I understand my role as a cultural strategist.
0: And would you say that this work is also part of you fulfilling your purpose? When you're trying to figure out your purpose, you think
1: about some of the things that people say to you and compliment you on all the time, like, repeatedly that you've heard over and over again. And often are things that you're not even necessarily trying to do. You just do them with ease. And it was very often, I often hear about my ability to not just analyze, but fuse and make that clear for others. That was something that I came to understand was something that I was walking with, was a part of my gift. And I had been using it a lot in the creative space because I am a creative. That's where my life had been was, was sort of blossoming as well.
0: Was there a pivotal moment to you where you just said, yes? There have been a few pivotal moments really informed
1: by seeing myself or seeing aspects of myself in, in my elders and mentors, many of whom are institution builders, one of whom it was the person who g- gave me my first job at 651 Arts and has gone on to be a cultural leader at a major foundation as well, and sort of seeing, wait, all of these People are sort of reflections of me.
0: Yes, because these are leaders who are also sponsors and mentors to you in the field. But I think what would be helpful to the audience is perhaps you give us an example of really that pivotal moment where you, where these lessons came together for you. One
1: of the moments where I was thinking about that was a moment where... I had been let go from a position Mm. that I really thought I needed to have, but it was a position doing things I had done years before and ultimately not being able to stay because it was recognized that I was overqualified for the space. So it was like, you can't keep playing small. You Mm. can't keep going where you don't belong. You can't keep going where the language that you speak doesn't make sense to people. that Your value is recognized and sort of pointed me in the direction where I am now.
0: To the road. One of the things I wanted to ask you, too, is about your childhood in Antigua and how you think the influences during your childhood helps to inform how you show up today, not only as Des, but also as the cultural strategist and curator sure. and artist.
1: I was brought to America and I'm always very interested in the child immigrant. An adult immigrant made a choice and exerted some agency, but the child immigrant was brought somewhere. I was brought to America actually I turned five in New York. And so people often meet me and think that I was, you know, I lived in the Caribbean well into my teens or- Well, because your to... accent's
0: thick. Still. Absolutely. I,
1: and I love that. First of all, when we came to America, we came to New York, we came to a very Caribbean community. I to tell people I didn't, I didn't grow up in New York, New York. I grew up in my mother's house. Right. And so and inside that house, it was transposed Antigua and ate Antiguan food, listened to Antiguan music. There were Antiguan people all around. One of the things that I remember that people would say, oh, you're going home. Yeah, going home next week. You're going." Home. So I so, so went home. The other thing I would say about the way in which I kind of grew up in Antigua in New York is I grew up in my mind.
0: That's very interesting. What does that mean?
1: I have a very lush internal landscape. We would go home for the summers and I would sort of eat with my eyes, sort of pack them into my mind, pack them into my spirit, and literally parcel out the memory to myself, to search, you know to sustain, to
0: survive: That's very powerful to frame these memories as an important part of your survival.
1: My relationships my family were really important to me and I didn't have those same kinds of relationships and same kinds of sense of belonging here in the States. I was a, I was pretty in Antigua. No one told me I was pretty in New York. Well, oh, this pretty child, so-and-so. People also when in Antigua, people knew you, knew who you came from. And so that sort of affirmation of lineage and legacy is very nourishing to me. In America, we went anonymous. The place where I was nourished and felt whole was there. And so I used my experiences there, my memory of experiences there to survive. And so I didn't really take in a lot of what was happening in New York. So I came to a place where my social sort of connections were very caribbean and mostly Antiguan. I lived in my mind and memory. So I think that's why I retained the accent so much. I do remember one time I was about eight years old. My mother bought me a recorder. Most of us had them, those little radios. And so I went, I was very excited and I pressed play to record and I didn't know what to say. So then I ran to her and I said, mommy, what to say? But it was in that moment that I heard myself. I, and it's that's when I realized, oh, I sound different. I don't think I knew, I wasn't conscious that I had an accent, but I remember that moment recognizing it and liking it. And so I think from that very early age, I took pride, whereas before I was, there was a kind of obliviousness to that difference and carried it as a currency and carried it as a comfort. And I I wear Antigua on my sleeve. I love Antigua. It's a very, very small place, but it's my place. It's the place that knows my name.
0: And so how does Antigua show up in your work, in your art, in your curation, in your cultural philanthropy, cultural strategy work?
1: I'm very much an advocate for immigrants. I'm very much an advocate for youth voices. I'm very much an advocate for parenting and caretaking artists. I'm very much an advocate. I'm a diplomat. Growing up as an immigrant child, especially one that lived in my mind in my home, but also lived in the place where we were. I, I developed multiple tongues. I developed multiple sites. I developed, I was able to understand both sides was ha- were saying about the other, why the Caribbean people, what they were saying about African-Americans, what the African-Americans were saying about Caribbean people. And like, wait, whoa, I see where you're both misunderstanding no this is what they really and I do that even in my work even as a manager I'm speaking to junior staff and helping them understand what senior leadership is trying to work out and speaking to senior leadership and advocating for what junior staff needs so that middle space that translating space that's also that comes from being a child immigrant I think
0: and what about in your music
1: in my musical work, I've worked with pianists from Ukraine and guitarists from Malawi. And we now we're going to be having sound bowls and pan from Antigua. So my ears are broad. And I think that's how that shows up in the work.
0: What stands out are, are two things to me. One, the ways in which you're able to employ your own Caribbean sensibilities mm-hmm. in the work. For you, you've identified it as in part informed by your Caribbean immigrant childhood and ways in which you're able to utilize the translation skills and the multiple tongues and the fluidity and code Mm -hmm. switching and all the things Mm -hmm. and how that translates to the different kinds of strategies you've designed for various organizations or the different wellness platforms that you've developed or convenings for Mm -hmm. community people. And also what you talked about too, which I thought was quite powerful in the sense of, for you, home represents the space where people know you, know your name, know your ancestry, know your legacy. And oftentimes, perhaps it is because we live in this imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist structure that there's a lot of othering. And as a result, there's an imposed anonymity that's placed on us. And that for you and your work, this is an opportunity for you to provide platform for the stories, the voice, the perspectives that are getting lost, that are forced into this other status, spaces of anonymity. You employing these sensibilities gives license to the opportunity to say, here's a platform for these voices and stories to exist and persist and be heard.
1: Absolutely. I think in the Caribbean and lots of other small spaces, there's a very pervasive, defining, thematic seeing of others. And sometimes it's a macro-seeing mining people business. Uh. But, but, <laughs> it's, but you are seen. You are seen. And I think that in social justice, you see people's humanity. So you see that they shouldn't be considered illegal. You see that they shouldn't be stopped and frisked on the street unreasonably. You see that there should be housing. You see it. And I think that's also, I love the way you put it. I do think that, that I would add that. This sort of seeing, this sort of hyper seeing is a a Caribbean sensibility that I think speaks to why social justice has been a natural habitat for me.
0: How does Des play?
1: I play with prettiness. I play with beauty at this point in my womanhood, in my growth, in my ownership of myself. I really enjoy, I give myself over to the fact that I love beauty. And beauty doesn't always mean luxury, but harmony in form, harmony in sound, harmony in texture. I love beauty. So I do. I play by surrounding myself with beautiful things. I play by buying a dress. I play by dancing to beautiful music and feeling the beauty of my body by really being in connection with the people that love me and lift me up and that I can do the same. That's play for me. And I also, one thing that's always been a a levity for me, I I daydream. I go away. Because daydreaming is a space of freedom for me.
0: So Des, break that down for us a bit. Uh,
1: Many, many times I'm in my mind in a sort of, again, a very sort of disciplined focus analysis or production, write this thing, draft this thing. When I can daydream, I can like just be in unity with the trees I'm seeing or just go where my heart wants to go in my thoughts and feelings. Right. And that's that's freedom for me.
0: What was really nice to see beauty and unity was including your contribution to Chantere Lewis's documentary film In Mm -hmm. Our Mother's Garden, which appeared on Netflix sometime last year. And you were there with other folks like Brittany Cooper and Marta Morena Vega and Yolanda Sanguini and Latham Thomas and Tarana Burke and a host of other folks. And when I watched it, I I thought, wow, this film is deeply spiritual and mm-hmm. creative. And when you talk about beauty, it's it was also a beautiful meditation on the concept of mothering ourselves yes. and the community. And there was some mothering in terms of like familial type of mothering, mm-hmm. but just ways in which we can mother ourselves and community Absolutely. which I thought was powerful so how is the concept of mothering and community play into the thematics of your life with regards to the rebelling the healing and the loving mm-hmm.
1: such a deep and dynamic question for me for motherhood for me is at both an anchor and a sail.
0: wow okay so explain a little bit what does that mean you know, Risha tradition.
1: People often say, "You don't get what you are; you get what you need." So, sort of thinking about my experience of being mothered and it not always feeling the way I wanted to feel, but when I reflect, I see how much it was what I needed. Because, like I said, I am prone to daydream, but I had an earth Taurus mother who's like, mm, "We don't have time for any of that." And so I had to learn that balance. And I think that mothering now also requires a level of balance so that you're not depleting yourself while pouring into your children whether we're now if we're mothering organizations for instance like you mentioned Dr. Marta Morena-Vega she's one of the mentors I was thinking about when I spoke reference mentors earlier because I worked at the Caribbean Cultural Center African Diaspora Institute which is an organization she founded so imagine the honor privilege and pleasure to be featured in a presentation with her that Trentrell and Jason and that whole crew of people didn't I amazing. Mean? job with that film, by the way, just to quickly jump back and then come back here. So (laughs) for me, even the balancing of nourishing self and nourishing others um, has been one of the major lessons of motherhood.
0: Okay. And so how would you say we can now then take the concept of motherhood and mothering and extrapolate that and apply it to when we're thinking about community and family and love and love of people?
1: What sort of restorative approaches to resource distribution, to creativity, that will put into balance systemic inequity that has shaped our shaped our communities to, to this point? How do we bring those kinds of injustices? into balance and all of those pieces that balance that equity begin to be the platform for productivity begin to be the platform for love and similarly we start from a place of balance start from a place of equity now we can build real community that really keep people safe that really keep give everybody the education that they need that really see each child and really leave none of them behind. So I think that that might be how mothering uh, and that reflection on mothering is in conversation with my work as a cultural strategist.
0: How does that then connect to your own personal thematics around rebelling, healing and loving?
1: I think for me, rebelling is about getting out of the box of yourself. It's about accessing courage and ownership of yourself and I think that particularly perhaps for a firstborn girl there's so many category boxes we can be placed inside of to behave the right way to do this thing properly and so for me rebelling is about ultimately freeing the self I have a poem it begins cayenne woman was a sweet little girl just wanted to fix you a plate and save the world just wanted to sing candy songs all day long till some fool her licorice lies at her head causing her senses to unfurl Out of of the tight, oblivious, bouncing little ball into which they'd been curled. Sister took a long look around and realized life had conferred to keep her head under sugar and spice quite submerged. And, you know, she pushed her hand on she kimbo and looked directly into the fire and became cayenne woman. Brava. So for me, rebelling is that. It is putting your hand on your kimbo and looking around and real, it's realizing and shifting into turning on, including in your pocket like a bit of fire. To me, I think it's healing because it, that's a process that requires you to take responsibility in order to take control of where you're going, what you're doing, your experiences, shape them into what you want. So healing is having that internal compass.
0: And that's a way to honor yourself, right?
1: I Honor Myself is the name of the the four-song EP. It's what the name of one of the songs on the EP. I've insisted to my collaborators, it must be the first one that we release. And it speaks to just that, someone sort of understanding, coming into the, a thing that had been calling them all along. Because healing, I think, is also understanding that what is yours, what you're growing into, you have always been.
0: Part of this process of rebelling is not just freedom, not just taking accountability as part of the healing, but it's also of trusting yourself and maybe even rediscovering yourself. And so that's part of the loving because you have to trust yourself, know yourself, allow yourself to heal and allow yourself to say it's okay to be free. Mm -hmm. Then you're trusting yourself and then that's love. But what's your take? I heard someone say, I, years ago, I do not
1: remember, he said, love is the only thing that creates. And that really like planted itself in my spirit. Like, wow, what does that mean? I'll reference Orisha tradition again, too, is a, one Orisha that is well-beloved, is Ashun. And the word Ashun actually means source. So that, again, it speaks to me, speaking to some sort of creative impulse, some sort of creative energy, that which brings forth. I feel like love is that which brings forth. I think about how we think about the earth as mother earth. And in certain parts of the world, in temperate zones, they will we'll have a winter and there'll be no, I mean, no leaves. And then all of a sudden, again, here comes the grass, here comes the birds, here comes the mm-hmm. leaves. You're like, wow, that must be love. And how does the earth feel to give birth to all of that over and over and over again, to give birth all those. So I think of love as the thing that can make something spring forth repeatedly. And what about to be loved? In order to be loved, if that regenerative energy is going to be placed inside of you because you are loved, then I think you're fundamentally also valued and of value. The source is not going to keep on investing that regenerative energy in a being if that being is not valuable, is not part of the purpose.
0: Well, not to answer this question for you, but I almost like to think that generative aspect that you're describing not just in terms of individual and personal love, but then also just how we interact with Absolutely. other entities. Absolutely. I can see that in your music and through your own activities around curation because art is like that. It's generative. It's generative in a sense of the artist or the creative was able to take from the environment, produce and bring forth mm-hmm. this other concept that other people then receive because we've all been in those places where you've heard a song, you've touched something, you've mm-hmm. seen seen something that was created by another individual and it did something to you. Absolutely. And it inspired and goaded you to do X, Y, and Z. And in many instances sparked a whole movement or was the soundtrack to a movement that helped to motivate other things. I see those connections. I'm curious to hear from your standpoint, When you think about the lessons that you've learned thus far Mm -hmm. and that you hope to communicate to audiences, um, whether those who are patrons to these various museum and art and cultural spaces that you work within or even through your own music, like how do you see all of this coming together? What is it that you want to communicate to folks?
1: A lot of my music is really encouraging. It's encouraging people to be free, encouraging people to love themselves, encouraging people to love beyond like what my what my mind might say. What happens often when I say bodies cry? So I understand that the work that the, and this is not something that I thought of is what I sort of you look at the pattern of your life and you see what keeps on happening. It's like, oh, the work. The sound comes from my heart, and it is when it leaves me, it is work. It's work. The work that it goes to do is on others' hearts. I'm not doing that on purpose. I don't set out, say, I want people to feel excellent. I I do it to free myself. And because it's on me and it wants, it is my assignment. I must do it. Even if I'm nervous, even if I'm scared and I'm often nervous and scared, but I must do it. People, oh my goodness, but did you perform at X, Y, Z, so-and-so that time? I was weeping for the whole night. Mm -hmm. I I thought I had finished crying about this thing, but when you did that, when you sang that note, I just, I was, I was like, wow. And where do you think that comes from? The music is coming from the water and it wants to touch the water in others. Water breeds life. That's what it's doing. It's what it does.
0: Mm-hmm. Get it, get it on. Act three Where We Land. All right, Miss Desiree Gordon, this is. A perfect time in the show where I encourage my guests to talk about and describe a little bit more in detail their latest projects. Where can the audience find you to follow you? If you can, please share your social media handle and or website and things that folks can look out for. We are in post-production
1: for We Fly Home. We Fly Home is going to be a visual and sound poem that charts a person's. A Heart's, A Spirit's Journey from Yearning and Longing to Self. This is a project that was begun in Antigua about a year ago and will be concluded in Antigua in a few months. So you'll be able to go to my Instagram page, Omishade Desiree, uh, to find that content, to find uh, links to my website, uh, where we'll be sharing the work And I Honor Myself will be released song by song beginning in September. I Honor Myself will be the first one. So that IG page, Omishade, O-M-I-S-A-D-E, Desiree, D-E-S-I-R-E-E, will be the hub for accessing all the other pieces. Omishade means water makes the crown in Yoruba which is one of the many languages spoken in Nigeria, Togo, Benin.
0: There you go. Again, with this theme around water and anything that folks can look out for over the summer or what might be coming through in the fall with regards to some of the other programs that you're doing through the Brooklyn Arts Council or through some of the other curatorial spaces that you are engaged in?
1: Absolutely. i I'm really excited to welcome people to the Wellness Festival that we are presenting in partnership with Mokata on June 27th. Uh, the Wellness Festival will be um, a compilation of performances, workshops, breath work, health screenings that will accompany the opening of the Sonic Clinic, which is the second of two artistic projects of the Wellness Studio, which is one of the platforms I developed for the Brooklyn Arts Council. And Sonic Clinic, I'm really excited to share, was curated by Dr. Daniela Fifi, another Caribbean uh, sort of thought leader, scholar um, from Trinidad, and just very much a trailblazer in the creative space. And we will be, this Sonic Clinic will actually be traveling to multiple community partner sites throughout Brooklyn. And the idea is not just to amplify the, the work of the artists featured in the Sonic Clinic, but also to amplify the Brooklyn Arts Council so that people in these communities can know about the resources that Brooklyn Arts Council has, the workforce development resources, the grant resources. So once again, what you see in play here is using the art to build a bridge to equity, build a bridge to resources, build a bridge to really community ecologies, really strengthening the pipeline, the infrastructure of community ecologies. And there's so much more in terms of what we're doing with the Brooklyn Innovation Institute, some trainings about how to converge creative skills in other sort of career opportunities, i.e. Counseling, creative therapy, we'll be partnering with, with Pratt, with Purchase, with the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce on a number of these pieces, and we're going to be sharing those trainings, both with local arts councils, but also arts councils in Colombia, in Brazil, in Barbados. i really trying to put wings on the work and send them out as well.
0: Folks can check out the Brooklyn Arts Council website as well for more information and subscribe and so that they can follow and be up to date with everything. This has been fantastic. So thank you so much, Desiree, for being here and talking with us on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness.
1: Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to think about these things uh, and be in conversation with you. I love this platform uh, and wish you many, many, many more seasons of success. With it. Thank you, love.
0: Thank you there you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.